Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 249 with Clay Scroggins. I think you'll find this conversation particularly valuable because Clay is addressing how to lead, be influential when you are not in the top position. And we heard that was a hit from Dodie Gomer. We just uh, revisited those hits recently, and he brings some fresh perspectives to that same concept, which is really seeming to resonate. So you're going to learn one, three simple questions to help you collaborate better. Two, the equation for powerful leadership. And three, how to have difficult conversations with your boss. So if you'd like to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items that we've referenced here, you can find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F249. Now, here is Clay's story. Clay Scroggins is the lead pastor of North Point Community Church, providing visionary and directional leadership for the local church staff and congregation. Clay understands firsthand how to manage the tension of leading when you are not in charge. He holds a degree in industrial engineering from Georgia Tech, as well as a master's degree and doctorate from Dallas Theological Seminary. Clay and his wife, Jenny, live in Forsyth County, Georgia, with their four children. Here is Clay. Clay, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome About Your Job podcast. Uh, Pete, I am excited and honored to be a part of this. I have listened to a few episodes and I'm a big fan. So thank you, man. Oh, cool. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad to have you. I think we're going to really get, enjoy this chat because one episode we had before, Dodie Gilmer talked about leading without authority. It was a hit and you got a whole book on this subject. So I, I think <laughs> we'll have some fun digging into it. But first I want to hear, you had to reschedule an interview because you had a new baby to welcome into the family. How's that going? Oh my goodness. I should have asked you earlier. Do you have kids? You know, we are expecting our first in a no couple way. weeks or maybe he'll already be here by the time this airs. We'll see. It's any day now. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is our fifth. And so I don't know. How is it going? I know the drill. I'll be honest with you. I love kids. I don't really like infants. And so that's what um, I hear about men in general. It's like they don't yeah. do anything. <laughs> that does feel like a, I don't know, more of a guy thing to say, but I'm not against infants. I just, <laughs> yeah, kind of like you said, they don't do a lot. And then there's just kind of get through the first three months. So I'm trying to not do that. I'm trying to be present and enjoy the little moments. And the great news is he's healthy and everything's great. And I mean, that's a huge deal. And birth really is like this crazy amazing miracle to get to experience. So. And what is the name of your newest edition? His name is Wit. Wit? Wit. Nice. How do we spell Wit? Wit Eris Scroggins. And at some point I'll stop enunciating Wit so strongly. Uh-huh. Is For it, now, like it's appropriate. Is it W-I-T? W-H-I-T. Okay. Wh oh, yeah, like Whitman or Whitney. Yeah. Or, okay. or Whitney. Yeah, I think it probably I got you. Or Whitman, yeah. Well, I understand your name has is a little bit fun. So tell us, what is Clay short for and what's the origin of this? Yeah, I'm Robert Clayton Scroggins Jr. And yeah, my parents grabbed the middle name and they call me Clay. My wife is so funny because when we had our first child, I guess first child was a girl, second child boy. I said, okay, are we going to go Robert Clayton Scroggins third? And she was like, I'm carrying this child for nine months. I really would like to have a say in the name of this child, oh. <laughs> which I loved. And so we don't have a third. But anyway, yeah, she's also a big fan of naming the child what you're going to call the child. 
And so it does create some complications, but it helps me whenever someone calls me and they say, hey, is Robert there? I realize, oh, this is a person that doesn't know me. So that helps bring the call. Well, I had read somewhere online that it was short for Claytonius. Oh my gosh. So I had this guy uh, write some copy for this website I did. He's a good friend of mine. He's very funny. And he did make that joke. Or in college, I'm a big Outkast fan. They're in Atlanta, rap group. I went to college in Atlanta. They had an album. All right, all right, was, all right. Oh, I was, that's right. All right, all right, all right, all right. They had an album that were released called Stankonia, and they called me Claytonia in college quite a bit. But no, it's just short for Clayton. Okay. Well, I thought you said, yes, it's short for Claytonius. And, and so, yeah, I thought this was going to go into an interesting Roman emperor sort of a vibe. <laughs> but it was just a gag. <laughs> I was like, I've never been asked that. I wonder what he means by that. But yeah. It does say Claytonius or something. I don't know. Yeah, that was a joke. Claytonius Maximus Claudius Drusus. You know, like... Um... Right, that's right. That's right. Okay, that's right. well, so now we know. Now that's settled. You set the record straight once and for all. So I want to chat about your, your book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. But uh, maybe first we could get sort of the, the quicker version of your backstory. So you, you know a thing or two about leading when you're not in charge. So could you give us a quick overview of that tale? Sure. I moved to Atlanta in uh, 1998. I grew up in uh, Alabama, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, home of the University of Alabama. They play a lot of football there. And I went to Georgia Tech in Atlanta to major in industrial engineering. I studied engineering there. It's a great engineering school, and it made me realize very quickly that I am not cut out to be an engineer, but I stuck with it, finished school. While I was in Atlanta, I got connected to this church called North Point Community Church, which is in kind of the northern suburbs of Atlanta. And I volunteered there while I was in college. I was kind of a mentor to high school students and just found a lot of purpose in that, really enjoyed it. It was a really great way for me to try to give back and try to help some people in a way that I felt like I had been helped in my life. And so anyway, I graduated from school with this engineering degree and committed to never use it. Uh, because I just, I really felt like I wanted to find, I don't know, purpose is a big deal to me. I really want to be able to find what I do to have a lot of meaning. And anyway, so I went to seminary to get a master's in theology and ended up becoming a pastor at this same church in Atlanta called North Point Community Church. So now I lead, we're a multi-site church. So we have six campuses or six churches in the Atlanta area. And I lead our original campus in Alpharetta, Georgia. And yeah, that's what I do. It's a pretty young, vibrant church. It's fairly large. On a Sunday, we'll have, I don't know, anywhere from ten to 12,000 people here. And I manage our staff here. That's about 100, 110 people. But in a way, I kind of lead a franchise, like a local franchise. And mm-hmm. You want fries with that? <laughs> That's right. I do the uh, I do the burgers, not the fries. But uh, and I've got I have loads of bosses. So yes, I do manage a good amount, but I still have I don't know. There's probably four or five people technically that are my bosses. But yeah, the whole process of I don't know the kind of franchise multi-site. You've got a central headquarters, and you've got these churches that are out trying to kind of do similar things. That that's really where I bumped into these principles of influence and authority and is through my own professional story. 
Okay, cool. Understood. Thank you. So then, well, could you unpack a little bit of sort of the key sort of theme or principles or or messages inside your book there in terms of how does one go about leading from a spot of influence as opposed to authority? Like I am the boss who was in charge because of my title or position. Yeah, I think what happened to me was I got a few promotions. The first job right out of graduate school for me was to manage one of our high school ministries at one of our campuses. And I don't know, I had, I had dreams, I had aspirations, I had things I wanted to do, I had ideas. And then you quickly kind of get, I don't know, you feel a little stuck, you feel a little frustrated, and kind of the, the reality of the way the working world works, where you realize, oh, I can't do all that I want to do, because I don't have enough authority. If only I had my boss's job, if only I had all of the authority that my boss has. So I kind of started bumping into that. Then I got a promotion. I started managing more. And I, in a sense, had a bigger job, but still had the same feeling of, oh, no, I I can't do all that I want to do. Then I became what we call the lead pastor over this one location. And that's when it really set in that, oh, my goodness, I've got a lot more authority than I ever have had, but I still feel kind of hamstrung by what I don't have. And I think I was focusing on or feeling victim to the authority that I didn't have at the time. Oh, that's interesting. And I started realizing, and honestly, I wrote this book thinking no one would read it. But the more I've gotten to be able to go into organizations and a lot of businesses and speak to teams and companies about this topic, the more I realized that this really, it does connect with people, that a lot of people feel the same way. They feel like, yeah, I'm on the team and I sit in the meetings, but man, if I were in charge, this is what I would do. Or if I had more authority, this is how I would handle it. Or, And so we end up, what happens is I found that I just, I became passive and I would sit on my hands and I felt like I was waiting until someone put me in charge of more to be able to really step out and try to make a difference, try to bring some progress or some change. And so honestly, it was through a few promotions that I bumped into this myth about leadership that we feel like we've got to be in charge in order to lead. And it's just not true. You know, that's so interesting when you say it's like, I need more authority in order to do the thing that I want to do. And then you got some more authority. It's like, oh, wait a second. And I think that there may be any number of resources, I guess you might call it, in the course of life and work in terms of if I only had more budget, if I only had more sort of personal income, if I only had more, quote, free time, then I'd really be able to do, you know, whatever. And so it seems like it maybe is sort of a theme or pattern in terms of similar lies or deceptions that we're, we're entertaining for ourselves. So maybe you could get at that is sort of what do you think is at the root of the lie and why we buy into it in the first place? Yeah, you know, Jim Carrey is not necessarily the source for how to be awesome at your job, but there is Jim quote. I don't know where he said it or when he said it, but he said, I really hope that everyone could get everything they ever wanted in life. So they realize that it doesn't meet all their needs or it doesn't fulfill them. And it's a great statement. And it's kind of what you're saying that, you know, maybe one of the most disappointing things in life is thinking you need more and then getting it and then realizing that didn't do it. And I would imagine there's a lot of people listening today who feel that feel that way about a promotion or about a to your point, if only I had more income or I'm single, I wish I was in a relationship or I'm in a relationship. I wish we could get married or we're married. I wish we could have kids or we have kids. I wish they would leave the house. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get there and you go, huh, this wasn't it. So 
I, I mean, I think part of what is in that for all of us is to try to figure out how can I not be a victim to my circumstances, but how can I use the circumstances I have to own the moment and to say, hey, what do I have? What's unique to the situation that I have? And there's some power to bringing some ownership to the situation that you currently have and not be victim to it, but instead try to leverage what you have to help make somebody else's day better, to help make somebody else's world better. So that maybe is at the root of what I was experiencing. Right. Yeah. And, and as you're speaking, I've got this lyric in my head. It's from a song by the Avid Brothers, and the song's called Ill with Want. And the lyric goes, I'm sick with wanting, and it's evil how it's got me, and every day is worse than the one before. The more I have, the more I think I'm almost where I need to be. If only I could get a little more. Wow. I think that song is powerful. It's a good tune. I mean, check it out. But I think it really plays into that notion. It's like, oh, you know, I'm almost there. A little more authority would do it. Oh, well, maybe not quite. A little more. And so then you and then you wake up with the Jim Carrey realization. So then, very cool. You know, thanks for, me, for sharing quick, there. Yeah. Note about that. I, you know, one of the things that I've loved about writing this book was getting to interview a number of leaders who have experienced being in a role where they're not the senior point leader. One of the people that I talked to was a guy named Frank Blake. Frank from, I think like maybe 07, 2007, 2014, he was the CEO of the Home Depot. It's an Atlanta-based company. It's maybe, I don't know, fourth or fifth largest retailer. Frank is a fascinating individual because he has worked for a lot of great leaders. He worked for Jack Welch for a long time at GE and worked for both Bushes in different parts of the government, worked at the Home Depot for Bob Nardelli, the CEO. And, but he's always been in a kind of a second or third chair position and was never the senior leader until he became president of the Home Depot, a CEO of the Home Depot. And I, I asked him about this. I said, so Frank, I'm sure once you got in charge, then you could finally lead like you wanted to lead. And he kind of laughed and he said, no, that's a very true point that even when you get to be the CEO, you still don't have all the authority that you feel like you need. He said, I remember the first week I was CEO of Home Depot and I had sent this memo out to every one of our employees saying, hey, from here on out, this is something we're going to do. And he said, I walked down the hallway, not 20, 30 minutes later, and I see the memo in the trash can. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, it made me realize Oh, there it is. Authority alone doesn't create great leadership, which that's one of the major tenets of this book is that we all know leaders who have a lot of authority and they're not leading well. And we know people who don't have a lot of authority who are getting a lot done and are making a pretty significant difference in their world. And I would just rather be, I'd rather be the one that is not using my lack of authority as an excuse. And so that's what I've hoped to help people with through this process. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Well, let's get into it. Let's say, hey, here you are in the, in the middle of a professional career and you want to exercise some more, more leadership and, and getting some results, make some things happen. And you got to lean upon influence instead of authority. How do we make that happen? What are some key principles or action steps to do it? Sure. I think the first thing anyone could do, you know, I would imagine maybe if you're listening to this and you're running on a treadmill or driving, then I wouldn't write this down, please. But if you are at a place where you could, I think just jotting down the question, how would someone cultivate influence? I think that basic question is worth every one of us answering and maybe even flipping the question of, hey, the people that I 
look to that have influence over me? What have they done that has cultivated influence in my life? Why do I want to listen to them? Why would I, if they called me and said, hey, here's an idea, why would I be willing to try it? What makes me give them my ear uh, when they talk? I think that alone is really what I, that's where I started is just saying, hey, if I'm not in charge, which I'm not, how do I begin to cultivate more influence with my boss, with the people around me and with the people that work even for me? And so what I did is I, I wrote down, here's four things I want to do. Here's four behaviors. I don't care if anybody else does this. This is for me. I'm not trying to prescribe this. I'm no John Maxwell leadership guru. I'm just a guy. So what can I do? And that's where I started. And then I, for me, they really are behaviors that I'm trying to do. The first one is to lead yourself well. And I know that seems, you know, there's been so much written on self-leadership, so much content about self-leadership, but that really is where it begins is to go, you know what? We're all so apt to blame our boss for how our boss is or isn't leading us. And the truth is we have an opportunity and maybe even a responsibility to lead ourselves well. And the great news is if you lead yourself well, you will ensure that you're always well-led. And so you can always start there of going, okay, what does it look like to lead me really well? For me, Self-leadership is all about knowing where I am right now. That's the hardest part because I think a lot of us have an idea of where we want to go, where we want to be, but you can't get where you want to be until you know exactly where you are. And I have tried to have a ruthless curiosity about my own strengths and weaknesses, my own blind spots, so that I can be more aware of where I am right now so that I can lead myself out of where I am to ultimately where I want to go. Okay. So now you said knowing yourself and where you stand right here now in the moment is the hardest part. And you try to be ruthlessly curious. So I'd be curious to, I'm curious about your curiosity, specifically (laughs) in terms of what were the processes by which you came to find answers to those questions. I do a lot of live communication in front of groups and audiences. And I love asking that question, Pete, to a crowd is just say, hey, what is the easiest way to find out when you don't know? And it's usually people's gut level response, which is great. You know, well, you ask somebody, I mean, how do you know what you can't see in the mirror? Because none of us can really see ourselves clearly in the mirror. We're all biased towards ourselves. And the easiest way to find out what do I really look like? This is one of the hardest things about getting married or being in a meaningful relationship is that other person oftentimes is a mirror to ourselves, which is hard. You know, you're like, wow, I never knew my breath smelled as bad as you say it smells. Or I never knew I had that little tick that you say I have whenever I meet someone new or whatever it is. But asking someone is the greatest way. So for me, my last job change, I left one of our campuses that has about 50 people that work there. And I just sent three simple questions. I did just made a Google form and asked three questions to all 50 people. And not everybody filled it out, but maybe, I don't know, half of them did. I said, Hey, here's three questions. Number one, what do you feel like I'm good at? What what do I do that inspires you to say it in another way? Second question, what am I not good at? What bothered you about me? I think is actually what I said. What bothered you about working with me? And then number three, what are my blind spots? What, What do I not see about myself? And it was amazing how basic and simple that process was, but it was, I mean, to say it was life changing might be a little strong, but it was genuinely I felt some significant breakthroughs in my own life that things about myself that I knew, but I was hoping no one else saw. For instance, people said, 
I mean, there, one of the themes was uh, we feel like whenever you're leading a meeting, we don't really feel like you're prepared. To okay. And I was like, well, you're right. <laughs> I'm not usually prepared because, I mean, I'm, I can think off my feet pretty quickly. And when you can, you rely on that too much, which is not always great. So that really changed, that changed me, you know, and it made me go, okay, well, I can be more prepared for meetings. A number of people said, hey, when we're on one-on-ones with you, it feels like you're not always listening. And it's true. I have a hard time focusing and listening. So one of the things I did is I started spacing my meetings out. I, I put a little space in between them to give myself a chance to have a breather. Makes all the difference to listen better. I found. I'm right with you there. It was so helpful. Because it allowed me to take a little walk around the building and then walk back into the next meeting and I had a little more mental clarity. And then the thing was, uh, they said, uh, feels like you've moved ahead. You're thinking about the next thing, which is very common. But anyway, all of those things just helped me identify things in my life that I wouldn't have identified if I hadn't asked. And now that I know where I am, I can know how to lead myself better. But I would have never have chosen to lead those areas until I identified them. That's perfect. Now on this Google form, was it anonymous? Oh, I'm sorry. I had a friend execute it essentially. So I had a friend send it out. Say, hey, I think I sent an email to a number of people Say, you're going to get an email from so-and-so and I've asked them to send this form and they're going to compile the results. Um, yeah. So just to make it anonymous, um, because you spend half the time trying to figure out who said what, you know, <laughs> which is not good. Yeah, but. absolutely. <laughs> You're like, ah, sounds like Johnny. <laughs> I wonder if there's like a, a piece of software that is just like, okay, paraphrase this <laughs> this paragraph so they can't tell it's from me. You can tell who said it. Yeah. But, but I know that that's great, especially if they know that you mean it and you care about it. And I think it's so cool to offer an example. Like, hey, for example, someone so gave me this feedback, which was very helpful because I've been trying to work on that and I found some improvement. And so I was like, oh, he means it. And I've noticed that thing too, now that you mention it. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, very cool. All right, so leading yourself is where it starts and, and where do we go from there? You saw recently, I haven't gotten a chance to listen to it, but I've meant to, but you had a, a podcast on positivity. That was my second behavior that I tried to, you know, I just decided, hey, I want to choose positivity. I want to be a person that, drops the negativity and the cynicism, which is crazy, but I don't know. My, I can lean there very easily. And I just decided that more important than my education, my ideas, my whatever talent I may have, my energy is the best thing I bring to the team that I work on. And I've, we've all seen this. You've seen people that you've worked with that can change the climate of a room because of their energy. And if that's true of them, then it can be true of us as well, that we all have that potential. I mean, the hardest thing about working to me is having to bring it every single day. I remember being in my 20s thinking, good grief, when we get spring break, you know, when does summer happen? Like we're taking summer off <laughs> because it's exhausting to have to bring it every single day. But the truth is, that's the best thing I have to bring is the energy that I have. And so instead of being a 40 watt bulb, I've really tried to be a 100 watt bulb. And the hardest time to choose positivity to me is when you're being handed a decision that you didn't get to weigh in on, but you're being asked to buy into it. There's Patrick Lencioni quote from The Advantage. He says, people are more likely to buy in when you allow them to weigh in, which I, I think that's so true. It's a great, a great truth and axiom about the way we should lead other people. The problem is, most of us who are not in charge are being handed decisions all the time that we didn't get to weigh in on. And we're like, what idiot made this decision? You know, and 
asking me to make it work. Like, this is terrible. It's a dumb process. It doesn't work. But what I've just learned is that it's in that moment that I have a decision to make. Am I going to take this and make it better and actually make it work? Or am I going to sit on my hands and be angry and sit back and watch this fail? And more important than making the right decision is owning the decision and making it right. I really believe that's possible. That you own a decision that you don't even agree with fully, but you can own it with such positivity that you can make it work. And we've all seen that. I mean, the best companies in the world aren't the best companies because they have the best ideas. It's because everybody's leaning into the same idea. And I think that's cool. Right. And I like that metaphor with the 40 watt bulb and the 100 watt bulb. I was curious with your cover. It's uh, It's got these three <laughs> light bulbs and one of them is is illuminated. It's not the one in the front. Uh, is, is that the metaphor you're going with? That is, yeah. It, it, I feel like it's a little bit like how the Counting Crows got their name. It's like some like one little lyric from one of their like B-side songs or something. But that, that was the attempt was just to give a little nod to the light bulb metaphor. Okay, I dig it. And so now you say it's exhausting to bring it every day. So how is it that you are expending energy to be positive? You talked about smiling and such. So like, what are those sort of little choices that you're making over the course of the day? to choose and exude and radiate the positivity? Well, what, here's something that just has helped me is it hit me one day that, you know, that I, I've got days where I love my job and I've got days where I don't love my job. And I think I was in one of those days where I wasn't loving it. And I had the thought, you know, am I going to be in this job forever? And I started realizing, well, of course not. I mean, I'm 37 years old. There's no way I'm going to be in this job forever. And neither will you. I mean, in fact, I bet, I don't know, 98% of people listening to this podcast, you're not in the last job you'll ever have. And that's good news. I mean, if you don't like your job, that's good news, you know? But I think on the flip side, recognizing that if this were the last job you ever have, can you be content enough with this job to enjoy it, to choose to enjoy it? I mean, most of us are fairly fortunate to be able to earn a living and support ourselves and help out other people. And I think it's a great place to be in to go. I'm content enough in this job that if it is the last job I ever have, I'm going to give it all that I got. Because when I leave this job, I want people to be surprised. I want them to go, wow, we had no clue that you were thinking about leaving. We, oh, you were so bought in. But that's the alternative. Oh, he was half in, half out. We kind of always thought he was about to leave. And I mean, that's not going to cultivate influence. And on the flip side, I think there's a lot of hope just to know that if you don't like your situation today, you're not going to be in it forever. I mean, there is this, there will be a shelf life to the job that you're in. And so you can be hopeful knowing that there's a better future, that there's something else in your future. But you may as well buy in today because it'll help your future if you choose to be positive about what you're doing today. And if you can figure out how to do that, it's a skill that will help you the rest of your life. How can I choose to believe the best about the people that I work around? How can I believe the best about my boss? How can I go into this with good intentions, not accusing other people of trying to ruin my world, but instead, oh, he's trying to do the best he can do. She's trying to do the best she can do. And I'm going to choose to be positive about this situation. And it it will ultimately cultivate influence for you if you choose to do that. Pete, I was speaking to a group of uh, a group of virtual assistants. It's an amazing company. You can hire somebody for 10 hours a week to be a virtual assistant for you. May you drop the name? I've used several of these companies. Sure, yeah. It's called Belay, B-E-L-A-Y. Like, uh, Haven't used that one. And okay, cool, cool. Continue. Anyway, so I'm in the middle of talking about choosing positivity. 
And this lady, I'll never forget this moment. She's over on the side and she just blurts out. She goes, that's so inauthentic. And honestly, like it caught me off guard. And I was like, dang, she's kind of right. Like that is inauthentic because you can't just walk around being positive about things that you're not positive about, that you don't feel great about. But then fortunately in the moment I had the thought, well, hang on a second. We're not talking about how to be true to yourself right now. We're talking about how to cultivate influence. And you can get excited about something that you're not actually that excited about without being disingenuous. We've all done it. And your boss, I guarantee you, your boss wants you to be excited about what you're working on. And when you become a boss, or maybe you currently are a boss, you want the people on your team to be excited about what they're working on. And if they're not, you want them to talk to you about it so you can at least help them understand why you're excited about it. And I think that's a better way to cultivate influence. Now, there might come a time where you go, you know what, I just can't fake this any longer. But I do think there are times where when I choose to be excited about something and see the best in it, I end up finding the best in it and I end up actually getting excited about it. And it's amazing how we can lead ourselves to do that. Certainly. Yeah. Inauthentic. You know, it's interesting because that word, well, it's so heavy, it's so loaded. And I mean, in a sense... I guess there is a measure of inauthenticity in terms of, I don't feel like this, but I'm going to try to dig it. Well, hey, you so you, you have an infant now, another one in your life. I imagine there are times you don't feel like <laughs> tending to... <laughs> You're exactly right, Pete. That's right. To the sweet angel's needs. Uh, (laughs) But does changing a diaper or whatever make you inauthentic? I'd say my hunch is, I guess my interpretation on that point, because it's valid in terms of, oh, you're faking it. That's right. I guess you're being authentic to a higher value of yours, which is, you know, to be a loving father or a compassionate human being, a disciple of Jesus, a lover of neighbor, whatever, or your role or identity is. And so you're authentic in that realm. And which is, and what I would argue is a higher authenticity than being, quote unquote, true to your desire. Yeah. in, In a moment. That's right. That's a great way to put it. But I guess I've wrestled with the same question myself in terms of, yeah, I don't really feel like talking to this person because I think they're kind of weird. And I would have a whole lot more fun talking to, you know, this other person over there. So am I being inauthentic by like pretending to be interested? And I think in one way, yeah, I don't actually care what this person has to say that happens. I care about what all my podcast guests have to say profoundly, by the way. That's why I've chosen them. <laughs> so Clay, you're off the hook. You know, right. you're playing solitaire <laughs> while, while I'm talking. <laughs> well, let's check out Belay, huh? Let's click around there. But in a a higher sense, you know, hey, I'm being authentic to the person that I'm trying to be in terms of like a a generous, kind, loving human being. So anyway, that's how I have navigated that tension. But yeah, I feel the concern is real. And it's it's cool that you have some candid audience members who will get you thinking. (laughs) I did appreciate that. I was like, thank you for your honesty, as opposed to just giving me a, you know, a a kind head nod. So thank you. That's good. Okay. So after leading yourself and choosing positivity, where do we go from there? So I love the combo of these middle two behaviors because there are a lot of people listening right now that you're not wired for positivity. You're wired for results. You're wired for progress. All right. You look into a meeting and you see all the things that we need to do that aren't getting done. In my world, I sit in a lot of evaluation meetings because Sunday happens 
every seven days, every week. And so on Monday, we sit there and evaluate, how did it go yesterday? Did we like what happened? Did good things happen? And we have a lot of people that want to talk about all the good things. And then there's a lot of people that sit there and go, okay, let's move on from the good things. Let's talk about how to change this and make it better because just the way you're wired. And when a lot of people, when you hear about choosing positivity, it kind of makes you, I don't know, makes you sick to your stomach because you think, oh, come on, like, get, like, am I just supposed to walk around like with my head in the clouds going, oh, this is so great. Everything's so awesome. Like those Legos in the Lego movie. You don't have kids just yet, Pete, but have you seen the movie? <laughs> you know, I have it, but we had a podcast guest talk about the creation of the Lego movie, Jennifer Riel, and about how they agonized over how to get that made. But there's this little song in the movie that they sing over and over again. It goes, everything is awesome, because they're trying to basically brainwash the Legos. And I think a lot of people think when they hear that point of choose positivity, they're supposed to walk around just everything is awesome all the time. As if that alone cultivates influence. And it doesn't in and of itself. But when you combine it with the skill of thinking critically, I think it creates a really powerful leader with or without authority. I know for me, someone passed me this article one time about millennials, which I hate all the articles being written about millennials. But it says, uh, millennials, are they misguided optimists or rainbow puking unicorns? And I thought, what a great word picture. A rainbow puking unicorn. And that's the way people see positive people sometimes. But the truth is, is that if you can combine the the posture of choosing positivity with the skill of thinking critically, you can really become a powerful synergistic leader who's making a significant difference in a really positive way wherever you find yourself, whatever seat you're in. So thinking critically really is a powerful skill. I think it's real simply the ability to notice things, question things, and connect things, to to observe things, to be curious and question things, to figure out how they work, and then to make connections between variables that are being changed and the outcome that you're looking for. And every one of us can get better at the skill. That's the great thing about skills. Skills are things that we can improve upon, but we have to practice in order to do that. And so I think part of the reason why in my own life, I have a harder time sometimes thinking critically is because I'm not practicing it because I've either, I'm either too busy. I either haven't given myself enough space, mental space to be able to step back and think about my job, or I'm just squeezed out those opportunities. I mean, I think the phone is probably the greatest competitor. The smartphone is probably the greatest thief of critical thought that there is because in the moments when we used to sit back and think about how to make things better, Now we just aimlessly scroll through random Wikipedia articles about how rockets are made or whatever. (laughs) Well, Um, that's a little more productive than than some (laughs) options on your smartphone, Wikipedia. Yeah, at least you're learning something. Well, yeah, I think I was kind of struck when you mentioned, okay, every Monday you have a chat about how things went at the church services on the prior Sunday. And I was like, well... (laughs) Well, maybe that's part of how you were ranked the largest church in America in 2014, 12,000 people, hot dog. I thought, how does that happen? And I guess that's part of how it happens. Boy, I mean, I don't know of many people in many organizations who are, are putting that much regular thought and iterative repetition on making something better. Like do it, reflect upon it, then do it again. 
reflect upon it, do it again. I mean, I think that's, that's a pretty powerful formula for excellence right there. Could you share maybe some of those questions that you ask that you drill into when you're thinking critically and to, to surface these insights on how to do better? Well, that, that's interesting, Pete, to hear that because I've never thought about that being odd. <laughs> that's culture for you. It really is. I know. It's so much a part of our culture that I've never even noticed it. But we are so passionate about one of our values as a team is make it better. We want, I mean, that's really what we're looking for in employees at every level. At, at, it doesn't matter if you're an intern, we want you to walk in. In fact, we ask interns a lot of questions because they're walking in with fresh eyes that's good, yeah. and they represent future generations. And so we want to know from them, hey, what do you see that we're doing that's kind of weird? Because it's so easy to just get so inundated with your own world that you don't see, kind of like the fact that I've fail to even realize that evaluation meetings every week might be a bit much perhaps, but, or maybe a good thing. I don't know. But yeah, the key to learning to think more critically, I think is to as basic as this is, what are we trying to do? What, what's the goal here? And then to start there and go, okay, well, in our case, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people to take steps. And we want everybody who watches a message or sits in a room for one of our church services to take some kind of step metaphorically, figuratively speaking, toward being a better person, toward helping someone else, toward looking more like Jesus, toward a growing relationship with God. And so when we, when we step back and go, okay, well, that's what we're trying to do, then to try to be mentally present in the environment and go, okay, how is this going? What did we do that became an obstacle? What did we do that helped with that? And then just trying to be as curious as possible and trying to notice things, question things, and connect things. But honestly, the, the greatest enemy is time. I mean, we just don't, we very rarely do this. I, I ask people usually in, in live environments is, hey, what, when, when do you have your best ideas? Do you know what the number one answer is, Pete? Shower. A hundred times out of a hundred people say the shower. It's crazy. And so because I've Googled it, I'm an expert on this. Evidently, there is research that says that is the number one answer and that it's actually true. There's something about the mundane task of the shower that actually allows our brain to function well and actually think things. But honestly, a lot of people say, you know, after the shower, they'll say, oh, driving to work, laying awake, uh, doing yard work, uh, working out at the gym, all of these kind of mundane physical tasks that we do that kind of free up our mind to be able to work. Well, here's what I'm trying to do in my own life is I'm trying to go, okay, well, instead of having to wait until tomorrow morning when I take another shower, or instead of having to go try to take a shower in the middle of the work day to have a great idea, like surely there's some practices where I can learn something from it and put those in place. And so for me, it really is. It's about time and space. It's about creating some space in my calendar to think about how to make what I'm doing better. And so for me, it's been waking up earlier in the morning, giving myself more time in the morning to actually just sit at my desk in front of an open notebook or an open Word document or an open Evernote file and say, what's on my schedule today? What's on my calendar? How can I make it better? How can I help the person that I'm going to interact with? How can I help solve the problem that we're facing? How can I help fix the situation that's in front of us? And I really believe that if you can try to do that in a positive hope-filled, I'm trying to help other people kind of way, it really can create some influence for you wherever you are, whatever seat you're in. So I think it's a powerful behavior to try. Okay. I dig it. 
And well, Clay, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about a few of your favorite things? You know, where I land the book is I got done with a lot of the content. I thought, you know what? I would, I just envision someone sitting there reading this going, I need to go have a hard conversation with my boss because I see things that I think need to change or I have ideas that I've been holding on to, or I feel like I've been sitting back and not engaging as much as I want. And there's some reasons why. And so I wrote a couple chapters on having a hard conversation with your boss, which to me, that's one of the most difficult things to do is how do you set up a time or walk into your boss's office and have a challenging conversation. So that was a lot of fun to write about. And as people have read the book, it's been one of the things that people have commented on most is, hey, that was super helpful. Because I try to give just a, here's a game plan, you know, before you just walk in there and say, this sucks, you're stupid, I hate this. <laughs> like, let's get a little, let's put a little thought into it. Let's get a little game plan on how to do that well. So I really hope that that's helpful for people as they process how to challenge up because that's not, not, it's not easy to do. Okay. Well, so I can't let that go. If you could give us a quick tip or two associated with how to challenge up well and effectively, let's hear it. I mean, the first thing I try to do is I try to, I try to declare my intentions right up front. We've all read books on conversations. I would imagine one of the, the most crucial ingredient to a difficult conversation is safety. People have got to feel safe. And so if you walk in and, and it's crazy to think, why would my boss be threatened by me? Your boss is human, and maybe you intimidate your boss, or maybe you bother your boss. Who knows? But if you can right up front declare your intentions and say, hey, whatever you can say that's most true, I really appreciate what we're working on here, and I can tell that you really care about it. And I just want to let you know that no matter what we talk about here, I just want to let you know that I think, I think you're a really great leader or a great person or you're a nice person or I appreciate how hard you work. I think anything we can do to try to declare our intentions and say, I'm, I don't want to ruin your day. I'm not trying to tear this thing apart. I just had a couple ideas on how maybe we can make it better. I think it goes a long way to help the relationship, what I have found. And it's something that I would want people to do for me because you can't catch people off guard with some challenging conversation, I think, unless you've stated up front, hey, I, I'm for you. I want you to win in life. I want you to do well. I want you to do good things in life. I think it's just a helpful thing to begin with. Yes, I like that. Cool. Okay, well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, I don't know where I read this, but I read this a while ago, and it's been sitting near my desk. But Thomas Watson, former CEO of IBM in the mid-20th century, said, nothing so conclusively proves your ability to lead other people as what you do on a day-to-day basis to lead yourself, which is so actionable and helpful to me because I just think, you know, instead of being frustrated at what the opportunities I'm not getting or how I'm getting passed over, whatever I don't have, I'm going to pick up the mantle to lead myself well today. And if I do that, then it's a, it will conclusively prove that I have the ability to lead more. So I love that quote. All right. And how about a favorite book? Favorite book? Well, I ha- I'm obligated to say the Bible, Pete. Okay. <laughs> kidding, kidding, kidding. Um, no, I would say probably Leadership and Self-Deception. It's a little book. It's a short read. Kind of like Lencioni, like written like a fable a little bit, like a lot of his books are, but it's terrific and it helps you create better relationships with people that you work with, which ultimately I think is going to create more success for each, any one of us in our careers. So, but it's a fantastic little read. We uh, read it recently with our, our leadership team here and it was very helpful. Oh, thank you. Excellent. 
Perfect. And how about a favorite tool? I mean, Evernote is probably what I use more than anything. It's amazing how, I mean, I have a number of different screens that I use. And so just to be able to pick up any screen and have what you need is terrific. So I'll go with Evernote. Okay. Very good. And how about a favorite habit? Something that helps you be awesome at your job? You know, stating out loud what I'm grateful for has been something I've been trying recently, which I really enjoy. I heard recently someone say that suffering ends when gratitude begins, which I think is so true. I mean, I just, it is amazing the power of just being grateful. It's hard to be unhappy in life and be a really grateful person. (laughs) The joy and gratitude usually go hand in hand. They're like peanut butter and jelly sandwich kind of thing. So I've tried to start my day by just saying, hey, here's a couple things I'm grateful for, which feels weird to do in the car by myself, but no one else is around. So (laughs) that's all good. And is there a particular nugget, a piece that you share that seems to really resonate and connect with folks? A clay original, quotable, gem? Oh gosh, my favorite statement or I don't know, kind of the big idea of the book is that leadership, that influence always outpaces authority. I really believe that. I believe that instead of waiting on authority or instead of leveraging authority, influence is just far more powerful. So I really hope that whoever's listening, wherever you're sitting today, whatever you're doing, that you can allow yourself to cultivate more influence because it will allow you to help someone else today and create more progress and try to make somebody else's life better. And I think that ultimately is what any one of us are wanting to do is to try to help somebody else. It's the greatest joy in life. And so if you can figure out how to cultivate more influence, it outpaces authority all the time, every day. Cool. And Clay, if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Clay Scroggins. And then I have a website, claysgroggins.com that has a weekly newsletter, weekly email that I send out that really has got some great interviews that I've done with some terrific leaders, both in business world and also the nonprofit world on this topic. So I'd love to keep in touch. Say hello. I love this idea of this podcast, Pete. And I love the name because I'm a big fan of how-to names, how to be awesome at your job. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and I think it it makes it clear, like this is what we're trying to do. Sure. That's right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would just say, hey, if there's a lot of people today that probably don't like their boss, I don't know. I've, I've, I've just interacted with a lot of people because of this whole process who say, hey, that sounds great, but I just don't like my boss at all. But I just want to encourage you today that just because you don't like your boss doesn't mean you can't get anything done. That people for centuries and centuries have gotten a lot done working with awful people. And one of the great things, one of the hard things, but great things about working for a boss you don't like is learning to take notes of things that you don't want to replicate when you become a boss. And maybe the very reason why you're in the position you're in is to learn some really difficult lessons. And that's hard when you're in the moment, but it's just the way life works, that resistance is what creates strength. And so if you feel resistance from a terrible boss, just know that there's an opportunity in front of you to create even more strength, because that's the way the world works. And that might not be fun, but I hope that's encouraging to whoever's listening, that if you don't like your boss, it doesn't mean that you can't learn anything and it doesn't mean you can't get anything done today. Awesome. Well, Clay, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This has been powerful stuff. I wish you all the best and that your your Sundays keep getting better and better and better <laughs> with, with all the <laughs> thoughts that you put into yes, them. Thank you. 
I really love the questions that Clay had to share, and particularly his courage and vulnerability and humility when he shared some of the, the feedback he got back, like, hey, I feel like when you're leading a meeting, it's not like you're as prepared as you should be, or in our one-on-ones, you're not listening to me. And I think that's real. And if you have sort of the courage and humility to go there with people to hear it and not flip out, <laughs> it just makes a world of difference in terms of, it seems like in, in my experience, there are leaders who can handle that and leaders who can't, and, and those who can't are not nearly as fun to work with, to collaborate and uh, have interactions. So I challenge you to dig deep and, and find uh, what it takes to, to go there because it makes a world of difference. And again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items that we've referenced, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep249. And I recommend you push subscribe if you have not already. So you'll hear from our next guest. It is Magdalena Yasil, and she is talking about powering up what it takes to just rock out and be noticed and promoted and advance and all those good things. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.